here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content's added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. Hello everyone and welcome to The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. This is Carly Waters, your usual co-host, but today I'm doing a special bonus episode with two lovely people in my life. I have my client, Jail Richardson, and her editor at HarperCollins, Jennifer Lambert, and I'm going to introduce them for you guys. Jennifer Lambert is the Senior Editorial Director Fiction, overseeing the Adult Fiction Program and the Children's Program. Jennifer acquires and edits a range of high-quality, story-driven fiction and select narrative nonfiction and memoir. Acclaimed and best-selling authors she has worked with include Emily St. John Mandel, J.L. Richardson, Heather O'Neill, Uzma Jalaluddin, Tara Moss, and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Upcoming authors include Deepthi Kapoor, Jordan Tannehill, and the Honorable Jody Wilson-Raybould. Jennifer works closely on the UBC HarperCollins Prize for Best New Fiction and is former chair of the Writers' Union of Canada. 
Jennifer can be contacted at jennifer.lambert at harpercollins.com. Next, we have Jail Richardson. She's the author of The Stone Thrower, a book columnist on CBCQ, and the founder and executive director for the Festival of Literary Diversity, also known as The Fold, in Brampton, Ontario. Her debut novel, Gutter Child, became an instant bestseller in January 2021 with HarperCollins Canada and was shortlisted for the Amazon First Novel Award. Richardson holds an MFA in creative writing from the University of Guelph and lives in Brampton, Ontario. Thank you guys so much for being here. We're so glad to have you. So, Jail, I'm going to start with you today. Chatelaine has called your book a deep, unflinching, yet loving look at injustice and power. And that is your best-selling book, Gutter Child. For anybody who is living under a rock, can you tell the listeners about your best-selling book? Yes. So Gutter Child uh, centers around the story of Elamina Madeline Dubois, who is a gutter child and who is raised from an early age on the mainland. And so at the start of the novel, Alamina arrives at Livingstone Academy and has to figure out what it actually means to be a gutter child, how she feels about it and what she's going to do about it. And inherently the book is an exploration of systemic racism and colonization, but it really does that by exploring the choices Alamina and her peers make in a world that's designed for their failure. And one of the questions I'd like to ask authors is, are you a plotter or are you a pantser? And because your editor, Jenna, is also on the line, maybe Jenna could answer this too. <laughs> well, it's funny because it's, I'd be interested to hear what Jennifer has to say after this. Because, uh, Jennifer came in, I want to say, about halfway through the length of time it's taken me to do this project. So I've been working on Got a Child for eight years I was working on it for eight years before it came out. And I would say at the beginning, I was probably a pantser, mainly because I just didn't know what I was doing, especially (laughs) in assembling a dystopia. I think there's just a lot that you have to take into consideration. And I just wanted to write the story. And so I got myself into some trouble that way because I wrote this story and hadn't answered some critical questions and really thought through all the possible parameters. I can say unequivocally at now I am a plotter I believe really fully in um, having uh, an outline and having a really clear plan and direction and then working from beginning to end in each draft that's really helped me be more economical with my time it's helped me stay motivated in those stages where I just kind of get feel the blahs. So I really plan out what I'm going to do. And then each draft, I work on one thing. And that's helped me avoid that sort of perpetual perfectionism that happens where you really get the first two pages, two chapters, really awesome. And you just ignore like how the story ends, which, you know, was a problem. Um, And so planning has been a big, big part of like my new writing (laughs) process. And Jen, would you, would you agree with that statement? I would actually really agree with that statement. Like, I think you always, even if you say would feel differently, but it seemed to me anyway, that you always had a very clear idea in your mind about what you wanted the book to accomplish and what you wanted these characters, particularly Elamina. Even if you didn't have the details of like every single plot point, I felt like you understood where you wanted to get them to or where you wanted to explore in any mm-hmm. case and what was really important to you. So when we would talk about all those, I know they were highly annoying questions about (laughs) world building, like what are the rules of this world in order for your characters to move fully within it and it for the rules to almost disappear for the reader. That's Mm -hmm. the hard thing about any kind of like structured and created world that isn't a dystopia, that you really have to have those rules clear so that they disappear. So while you were working on through this, 
and we talked about all the questions of this world, then that determined how the plot could roll out in some cases. So it was really interesting to see those two things balancing each other over the course of drafts and conversations. But as I said, it was always clear to me how clearly you were had a vision for where you wanted your characters to um, to end up or to go or to experience what you wanted them to experience and explore and what you wanted to explore through the characters. Jen, if you were asked to describe your editing style, how would you describe it? Uh, that's a really good question. I would hope that people feel that it's collaborative in a way because I feel like there's times when I just do ask a lot of questions because I want to understand the intention of the writer and try and help them get there if it doesn't feel like it's working yet. So I think that there is lots of conversation to be had when in the editing process. So lots of work like by yourself alone with the script as you engage with it, understand this sentence by sentence, paragraph, pacing, all of those things. So I do all of that work and then really try to engage with the author's intention and then talk to them about it. And then whether or not what I've recommended is the course that the author takes, it's really the intention for me is to get to the root of what's quote unquote not working or needs needs flushing out or needs a new direction um, to then hear them come back to me to say, you know what, maybe it's not this way that you suggested, but it's why it's not X, it's Y. And this is why I think so. And that makes me very excited because I see how the author's, you know, moving within their own space and world to, to create the, the story that they want to create. And Jail, what was your favorite thing about Jen's editing style? Well, I have to say one of the things that I realized um, I had read a number of Jen's authors beforehand, some of whom I was huge fans of, like Heather O'Neill and Catherine Hernandez. And it was interesting to read the books that she had edited and to realize that there, and I, I hope this is a compliment to you, Janet, there was no sign of hurt. In, you know what I mean? They didn't yeah. all sound the same. They all had their a very distinct voice. And so that actually was something that both intrigued and challenged me because I realized, you know, uh, I was going to have to do a lot of work myself to get my story, my voice, my sound right to, to understand how I was going to write and navigate the writing world. And Jen was going to come in and work her magic. <laughs> and uh, there's this really hilarious video on YouTube, Jonathan Frakes interrogates you. And Jonathan Frakes is the actor who played Lieutenant Commander Riker on Star Trek Next Generation. And he asks this series of questions like back to back to back. And it's a hilarious compilation. And that's to me, every time I think about working with Jen, that was my favorite thing is that she was going to come with all of these questions and it was going to be like, do I have an answer for that? <laughs> or do I know the answer? And what's so great is that when I didn't have an answer, it gave me time. She gave me time to think. And those answers would shape so much motivation for the story. Like, oh, like, what if this happens? Or, oh, if that's not clear, how do I make that clear? And so she never really like prescribes a lot. She just asks a ton of questions. And that's my favorite way to work. I love when my own brain is activated and thinking and having to answer things that I thought maybe were clear, but aren't. And then mm-hmm having to be creative with how those things are made clear because I don't want the writer to feel like information dump, like it's just like <laughs> content. So how do I take what's not clear and sort of, especially in a dystopia, spread it out over the whole book and, and reveal it slowly? It's interesting you say that, Jail, because there are times when on other styles of books or other writers where one does have to be more prescriptive in a given moment, like you are missing X scene in order to, you know, have the tension reach the right point. Or I really recommend that you don't 
uh, include the first four chapters of the book because it takes too long to get started. Mm. The book actually starts at this point. So there are times um, when you have to deliver what could be really tough news. And sometimes the author needs some time to see whether or not that suits them. Um, Mm. But it's funny because when I work collaboratively with editors in other territories, when I'm working on a book that has a publishing deal in the US or the UK or Australia, and we're working together, there are times when you get to talk to another editor and you're Mm. collaborating on that. And then you see what other people see in in Mm. a book and you can get that a little bit. And then you go back to the author again. And my point there is simply that sometimes, yes, you have to be more almost, I won't say it's intrusive, but it's, it is more prescriptive. It is more like directing, like you, we really recommend this and this is why. And if if Mm. you can answer the why of it, this is what it will accomplish. I find writers are really very open to considering it. And again, whether or not they come back to you with exactly what you've suggested or they take their own path for it, mm. um, it does it does work. Well, and I like that you said that because I probably my favorite chapter in the book in Gutter Child happened because Jen was like, uh, you need something here. Like we need like a lightness. We need a, we need some space emotionally (laughs) in reading this. And it's about halfway through the book, a a birthday party scene. And I wrote it to fill in a space and it was really fun to be given that room to just plan a scene that was entirely about joy. And yeah. And, and still also one of my favorite lines I stole from Jen. So I just have to give credit (laughs) where credit is I'm going to use that. Thank you. (laughs) That scene, I love that scene as well. And I think in particular really does reveal these young women, that's, you know, a group of young women at this birthday party. And they go through so much over the course of the book that is that is a challenge to them and that Mm. brings them down or that they're fighting against something. And in that moment, as you said, Dale, pure joy Mm. and friendship. And you come to know the characters again in a different way. Mm. It's just, it's a really beautiful scene. And it reminded me in terms of the way it just really propelled forward and just felt so natural, all the dialogue, all the, all the joy that's there, but everything about that was one of the scenes that came very early in one of the first drafts of the book, which Mm. is when um, Elamina meets a woman, Ida, at the mm. academy, and they have a conversation while Ida is doing Elamina's hair. Mm. And it is just that, that to me was one of the most, what really shone for me and just showed me the power of your writing and how mm. skilled you were even at that, those early stages of the manuscript, how beautiful this cadence to it that was so natural and so compelling and so engaging. I just love like those scenes. When I think about the book, there are many scenes that stick out for me, but those two in particular really resonated a lot. Yeah. This book is all about the balance of the trauma and <laughs> yeah. working through all of that, but balancing that with hope. You know, a lot of the reviews of this book and a lot of what readers take away is that there is hope that we can find. So I want to come back to and recognize the kind of emotional heavy lifting that Gutter Child really required. And I want to make sure that we, you know, as the readers and, and people that have worked on this book with you, really appreciate the work that you did, Jail, to inform and entertain readers. How did you personally balance the drive to create this world and these characters? with the need to kind of mine that deep intergenerational trauma and research oppressed societies for about eight years. Um, That's a lot of dark material to to sort through and balance. Yeah, and it's interesting because I think I was coming off working on the memoir about my dad's life. And I think maybe part of the reason it was didn't feel like heavy lifting for most of the time I was working on it was because I was writing from a place of having seen people conquer the system and beat the system. And so when I was initially writing it, it was from a place of freedom, success, like these kinds of things that allowed me to then say, okay, but wait, at what cost? At what challenge? With what 
baggage or weight. And so creating creating Gutter Child was very much about building a framework in sort of a science experiment that says, okay, what happens to people when they grow up in a world that's built like this, where some people are given a lot and some people are given a little? When do they realize it and how do they navigate it? And so it came from a place of curiosity and it ended up leading me into a darker place. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it came from this place of like hope and, and, and interest and curiosity, but it led to a place that was quite difficult because I started to see how easy it was to build systems that oppress the community and how difficult it is for that oppressed community to then tear it down. One of the things with Gutter Child is I was very interested in having a realistic dystopia. You know, it was sort of meant to reflect and mirror the world that we're in. And so I didn't want to have these sort of fantastic solutions to the problem. And so the challenge I got to as I started to work through the book was I was like, oh, this is tricky. You know, this is tricky to figure out how to tear down a system. And what was interesting is it was very easy to find ways to reinforce the system. So when Jennifer was asking me questions about, okay, what happens to a woman who's pregnant or what happens in this situation? What happens if you pay off the debt? What happens if you don't? I was like, oh, this is the new rule and this is the rule. And it's very easy for systems to create rules that make it stronger, but it's very difficult to tear down a system that's been built intentionally as an obstacle. Mm -hmm. And so as I got closer and closer to the end of the book, I started to be like, oh, shoot. <laughs> you know, like, And unfortunately, I was also working on that ending and that place in 2020. And I would say, I say 2020 as being like the exclamation point on a very long sentence of troubles. Uh, Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd were the end of a series of stories. Breonna Taylor, they were part of a long storyline. And so when I was, when it started to come to a real head, I was already sort of carrying the struggle with like, what do I give people with this book? What's my responsibility as a writer? Do I give them hope? Do I, do I give them hope that's real? Do I give them hope that's manufactured? And I had all these real like difficult questions that I was carrying. And, you know, I I say this fondly about the two of you as white women (laughs) weighing in on the book, you know, you've always been really thoughtful and open-minded, but I did at times feel very much alone in having to make decisions on behalf of the Black community or with the Black community in mind, I should say. I definitely questioned, like, what would Black readers think? What are they going to feel? What are they going to need? And that was really important to me. And I I really didn't have anyone to to throw answers back at me. And so that was probably the hardest part. I know we had those conversations about hope a number of times. Carly brought it up and you brought it up too. It's mm-hmm. like, and you know, to, to the later discussions about the ending of the book. So they can't, those hope discussions came in a number of different ways. Like mm-hmm. what would feel, and the end conversation is what would feel false? Yeah. You know, what, you're not trying to wrap this up, as you said, with any kind of vote, because that doesn't reflect the reality mm-hmm. of what is happening in the world. So how can you, you know, show that there is a future, show mm-hmm. that there is a strength there? Because we also talked about how Alamina's trajectory is a downward one yeah. in in some viewpoints, you know, yeah. if you looked at it in a particular way, but in fact, and with this is without, you know, giving away plot, but she is a character who comes to know herself finally, yeah. you know, so that is actually- And that's really an upward trajectory. Plot. And that's an upward yeah. trajectory, exactly. Yeah. So her inter- internal interior self-knowledge is on the way up while her circumstances seem to be going down. Yeah. And I think that's a challenge too for readers, particularly of a certain type, 
who look at stories about characters of color or oppressed communities and sort of see the pity in it mm-hmm. and the, the sadness in the journey. And I find that hard to balance sometimes, how it's so hard to take in, because I do feel like the story is ultimately a triumphant one. A character goes from not knowing herself to knowing herself. And I think that that is really a powerful tool for women in particular and and I didn't realize when I was starting it but it really is an interrogation in particular of like women in oppressed mm-hmm. communities and the particular challenges that they carry with them. One of the things that we talked about really early on with this project JL so going back I don't know how many years the book's been published this year I don't know when we started talking about this book maybe mm-hmm. 9 years ago now and one of the things we talked about at the very beginning is you have this awesome idea but who is it for right we yeah. talked about you know, is it for, a, at one point we were thinking it's for a YA audience and then it's for an adult audience. And does the writing process itself need to be shaped by the category that publishing kind of needs to put on it? Or are we going to work backwards from that and, and kind of figuring that out, which was really interesting. And so ultimately it was published by an adult publisher, an adult imprint, but we've had a lot of crossover potential. And we've also yeah. seen a lot of success with teachers wanting to take it on, which is amazing in their classrooms. Um, and we ultimately did a teacher's guide that is circulated. So anybody listening that's a teacher can grab that and and use it to help educate their classrooms, which is so wonderful. So have you gotten a lot of feedback one way or the other in terms of, you know, the teen audience versus the adult audience? Are you happy with the crossover? How have you landed with that at at the end here? Yeah, I mean, that's been probably the most controversial part of the book (laughs) is like, you know, uh, I try not to look at reviews online, but I know the people who are uh, a lot of people are sort of like, they like to put things in boxes and they like categories and some have been very upset that it wasn't labeled young adult when their characters are young and clearly it's young adult. And I'm like, I don't, because I think at the time when we discussed this between the three of us, I think what I really wanted was to not have any kind of barriers or restrictions on it. As a writer, I didn't want to have to not talk about certain things or change the way I wanted to talk about certain things in order to accommodate what would be appropriate for a young adult audience. But I do think because Elamine is 14 at the start of it, there's certainly a question of whether it should be categorized young adult. And I think the question is really in the hands of the reader to define what and why they consider something young adult. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a survey once on, on Twitter that was sort of like, when you hear young adult, is it about the age of the characters? Or is it about the style of writing? Or, you know, what is it that actually puts it in that category for you? And it was really quite evenly across the board, a number of things. Some people said, you know, if it's set in a school, it's automatically young adult. And there all these sorts of discussions. And so for me, I'm happy with the way it's set. I I did an interview with Angie Thomas and I asked her about why she writes young adult. And she said, I'm writing characters that are that age. That's what I'm interested in. That's who I'm interested in. And so even when she wrote a book about a character, um, her most recent book was a prequel. She said she, she said it where he was a teenager, not an adult because she was writing for teens. And that was for me, probably the moment where I realized we had made the right choice because Mm -hmm. I didn't write Elamina 14 because I wanted teenagers to connect with her. I made her 14 because the question I had was, when do you realize the system is failing you and what do you do about it? And I feel like 14 to 18 is where a lot of those things start to come to a head. And I won't say, you know, I am working on a project that sort of uh, (laughs) follows this story. I, I don't feel like I need to put them in that same age category. I don't feel like I just need to address things that are related to teens. I'm not in that same space as Angie is. I, I'm really quite interested in 
the broad range of readers, I think the one of the biggest compliments I've gotten for this book is when teens read it and their teachers read it and their parents read it and they all mm-hmm. like reading mm-hmm. it and talking about it together. I think that's really, yeah. for me, the, the most exciting piece is that no matter how old you are, you can sit around it and have a really great, meaningful conversation about the real world based on the characters and the story. And that's where the teacher's guide comes in, I think, to help facilitate those conversations as well. Jen, how did you know that we needed a teacher's guide for this project? What what precipitated that? Well, I was just thinking a lot, I'll answer your question, but I was thinking a lot about what you were just saying, JL, about what precipitates a YA versus an adult Mm -hmm. book. And it's true that there are, certainly in the children's publishing sphere, there are certain sort of guidelines that would indicate like how children read up. And I think that there's been so many books that have been of interest and applicable that are in the adult space that young readers read up to, which is what I think this book is. And I think that there's such a miscomprehension out there in the general world that if you label something YA, then it's less sophisticated somehow, or the ideas and themes are more simplistic. And, you know, as you can see, you mentioned Andy, Angie Thomas, like those are deeply complex settings, stories, tackle huge themes and people. They're relatable to young mm-hmm. people, but that's, a, that's also a huge crossover book. I mean, those books, um, all of her books have been read by a huge array um, yeah. of readers, um, adults and teens. So I would say that I'm thrilled too that this that Gutter Child has drawn so many people of varying ages and that they can find something in the book that they connect to. So yeah. I think with the teachers being able to, and, and the, the woman or the two women that we hired in jail, that was your recommendation. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the women who was a diversity and inclusion expert in the Halton School Board, I believe. Yeah. And she, is, she was just incredible in the way that she was able to delve into the text to flesh out those themes for discussion with young people. So I think, you know, we've made it available for free to anyone. And it's one of those things that I think even a lay reader would be very good for them to look at some of those questions because it will make you think differently about what you've read or think more deeply perhaps about certain aspects of the book. So why was there a teacher's guide? I mean, we've done that for a couple of really key important projects, but also because jail, because of your connection to the education community and we saw the potential for it. So we really wanted to make sure that we got to those readers and that was a really great way to do it. Yeah. And I think the teacher's guide, it's interesting. It's a lot like the way that you question when, when I'm working on the book, Jennifer, and you say like, what about this? What about this? You know, there's things that I assume people know or understand in reading the book that aren't always clear that I need to fill in. And I think for teachers, there's things that I would have assumed (laughs) uh, people would know or understand. And there's other things I know they wouldn't generally know or understand. And I think that that can sometimes make it intimidating to teach a new book if you don't have these sort of like extra resources. And so it was a real, I'm really grateful for the work that was done on the teacher's guide, which made me cry the first time I read it because (laughs) it was just so comprehensive. I could not believe that two people had spent that much time reading that closely to the book and that they had pulled out all of the things that I thought were really important and other things that I just didn't even think about. And I think too, one of the things that's my favorite thing is just the first page where they sort of frame the intention of the book and the intention of how a classroom should posture itself in studying the book, that it's not meant to be something a teacher has to come with all of the knowledge to teach. It's Mm -hmm. actually about creating a space where the students feel like they are contributing to not just the discussion, but the content, the driving force behind the book. 
We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronunciating words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of one hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June, with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page, and please spread the word the more writers we have signed up the better the matches will be and yeah one thing we haven't talked about yet on the podcast here is your work on the fold so mm. for anybody that doesn't know the fold is called the festival of literary diversity it's a wonderful festival put on in brampton which mm. is jail's hometown i always kind of i'm curious about how your relationship to the publishing industry has changed through the fold i started the fold because of 
the problems that I saw in publishing. So I really wanted to create a festival where uh, marginalized writers would be the sort of the, the center, the highlight, the feature, not the sort of afterthought or the no thought. I wanted a place where uh, marginalized writers could talk about craft. I saw a lot of marginalized writers being called to talk about what it's like being a Black writer, what it's like being a queer writer, what it's like writing, you know, immigrant stories. And I wanted them to be able to come and do a workshop on writing characters and writing plot and setting and and being asked to explain their expertise in the craft of writing, not just in their identities. And so that's where Fold came about. And I started the organization in 2014. And then the first festival happened in 2016. It really, yeah, it came because I saw this gap in the industry. I felt like the industry didn't really understand writers from marginalized communities. I felt like when my memoir came out, there weren't festivals or channels for me to to explore. And I think some of that had to do with marginalization and, and oppression and systemic racism and things like that. But I think it's also, you know, as much as I love publishing, it's also kind of dysfunctional in like, <laughs> it's not, <laughs> it's not like working in a cohesive way. You know, there are libraries and, and booksellers and teachers and readers, and I don't feel like they all know what's going on and that everybody's able to sort of keep up and support each other in the ways that we need to. And so the festival has given me a place to kind of change and challenge that a little bit, you know, and to learn more, even as a writer, understanding like what I need to do when I come out with a book, as opposed to what I expect my publisher to do. You know, we talked about the education guide um, and the teacher's guide. If HCC, if HarperCollins Canada hadn't done that, I would have done something myself because I knew that's the kind of thing that that's important. So I think it's about, it's helped me see where some of the gaps are and that's helped me as a writer strategize. And I also, I was in college professor before I, I started working on the festival full-time. And I think it really helped me focus on my writing and continue to work on my writing to be in a job where I was constantly surrounded by other writers and by people in the industry and by conferences and events that would feed my job and my writing. And so that's been really, really helpful for me just in terms of time and my craft. You feel so motivated to write after the festival. It's just Mm. like, oh my gosh, I have so much knowledge and so much excitement. So I really appreciate that. It's been really helpful to me. Okay. I want to switch gears a little bit to talk with Jen just about the publishing industry from our perspective. So for any listeners that don't know kind of about the acquisitions process itself, Jen, do you want to talk a little bit about, you know, if you want to buy someone's book, what happens? And and just talk us through that a little bit. So everything does end up starting in this conversation with an editor really connecting to a manuscript, whether it be in proposal or full manuscript form, and whether that be fiction, nonfiction, um, illustrated books, children's books. So that conversation starts between an agent or the writer directly and the editor. And the editor comes to the acquisition process looking for, often they have sort of set areas of books that they work on a lot like agents do. So Obviously, some people will say like, oh, you know, send me all, whatever fiction you write. But, you know, some editors will say, you know, I don't do any YA or middle grade fiction. I only work on literary fiction, even though the, there's lots of arguments about whether or not these categories like, have very porous <laughs> borders. And so you really you just have to think carefully about what you're buying for your publishing company and why and why it's the best fit because there's been lots of books that I have seen that I thought were excellent, but I knew that they weren't the right 
fit for me or for HarperCollins necessarily. So what happens is that if I think a project has all the merit that I think and has sales potential um, that meets sort of HarperCollins commercial outlook, then I would take it forward to first an editorial group meeting, which is my fellow editors, the publisher, um, our rights director, and we discuss the book and, you know, I make the argument for it. I talk about what other titles there might be in the market that I think this compares to, which is also a very hard thing to do, which, you know, in my heart of hearts, I dislike doing because every book is unique and has a unique composition to it in a writer's voice. But that's how we talk about things within the market. It's a, it's a little bit like this and it's a little bit like that. This is why it will sell because it's a little bit like those books that have been your favorites. And then once you've talked to your colleagues in that editorial sort of group, you take it on to a meeting that would include the heads of sales, marketing, publicity, and then again, like the rights director and all the editors are there and the publisher. And then you, and every house is a bit different, but this is what I'm talking about in the HarperCollins world, which is usually how sort of the big public publishers work. We discuss it there. We discuss the author and, you know, it's, I think you're asking me probably about platform. And in fiction, you know, obviously someone who published for that weighs in on the conversation, but the debut is always exciting to us because it's unlimited potential, right? Like it's really, it's really, it can be quite exciting, which is why you see some of these views really like take off in terms of the um, the bidding that happens and things like that. But otherwise, sometimes it's it's hard for debut authors to get their first uh, their first publishing deal. So it really just depends on the moment in the book. Platform for nonfiction is really much more important unless it's no more. And then when it's no more, it really has to be an unusual story or a beautifully crafted one. Um, but if it's anything else with like business advice or, you know, inspirational leadership or, um, you know, cookbooks, health books, that reach of the platform, which means like their social media outreach, their presence and connection with the community in which they work, that weighs in a lot. And so we have all these discussions around the authors and their work. And then we have to look at very clearly like what our sales projections are and then look at what our like what the costings are, what we can afford to pay in advance, what kind of rights we're going to buy, um, whether it's just for Canada, whether it's for the world, whether it's for North America, what languages um, our rights director weighs in, um, whether or not she could sell those rights in various territories. Uh, so all this happens, like it's a, and it often has to happen extremely quickly. <laughs> and then sometimes it can take a while because of the volume. I know that the word on the street for many editors right now is just the volume has been kind of crushing through COVID. Editors are getting in the US and the UK, I think, 10, 12, manuscripts a day to read over the course of the week. So how do you keep up with also the books that you already own? So in that process, just getting back to the process, then like once an offer is sort of put together, then you go back to the author or to the agent to discuss that offer. You make a financial offer and you commit to somebody. You really do commit to not just the financial aspect of their book, but supporting it in publication and mm -hmm. what your vision for the book is and how you see it out in the market. And that's really important, I think, for writers to feel as if a publisher really does get what they want to do and how they, like, that your visions match. Because if the visions don't really match, then the writer, especially a new writer, might feel sort of like, okay, if I shift what I want in this direction that they want, then it will work, you know? But sometimes that doesn't always work. Sometimes that doesn't, it's not really the, truly what the author is getting at so those you have to make sure the match is right so that's a very long-winded answer mm -hmm. to, the, to the acquisitions <laughs> process no that was perfect <laughs> it is a very long-winded process and very industry specific and yeah I agree with you about the I call it shoehorning you know when you're trying to shoehorn yeah, a project yeah. together that's usually what I say I mean I've done this job maybe 11 years now and the shoehorn when you're trying to shoehorn something it never works so you know yeah. you really just have to let the creative process just feel itself out and it's obviously a business we're all working in a business yeah. but yeah it's such a creative one I think that's what keeps us so tied to it. We love it yeah, so much it because it's the mix. Of I mean, the two. yeah, 
just to just, I'm going to counter myself and, and you a little bit on the shoehorning thing. Cause there are the, there are the moments where you see, I think this happens more in nonfiction where you see a proposal, you see a book come in from somebody and you say, you know what, this could be so good if you just shifted it like 15 degrees this way, or have you thought about it this way? And you end up having an editorial conversation with the author and, you know, it's a bit of a risk because you're showing that you're interested, but you're not necessarily ready to offer on the book as it exists now. But if there's ability to between the author and editor and the agent involved too, that you can see where the potential might lie in shifting the book a touch. And everyone is excited about that and sees the potential of it. Then that's very exciting too, because then it takes on again, its own life as a, as a book and as a sort of a, its own trajectory. And it feels exciting. So rather than it being like, we're shoving someone into doing something that we want, uh, it feels like it's again, this collaborative thing about like an idea that can then change the book a bit. And other, other publishers might not see it that way and they might like it as it is. Right. And then that's the right fit for them, that set of editors and, and publishers. Mm-hmm. And from the agent perspective, you know, when I'm sitting on, on those calls, say we have, you know, three different editor calls and three different visions, it's always so fascinating to me that mm-hmm. you know, I go out on submission with something, you know, with the author, obviously imagining it a certain way. And obviously we're flexible to certain things, but it's so interesting seeing what different editors pick out in terms of, you know, things they want to highlight or things they want to dial back. But yeah, it's a, it's a very, very fun process. And that's why I love my job. <laughs> <laughs> Carly, I'm really actually really interested to hear a bit more about that from you um, yeah. regarding how agents approach that when there is something like one editor in particular is saying, you know, what, what about this way? And the other editors are saying, no, we love it as it is. What's attractive to the author? I know it can depend on the author, but what's attractive to the author and agent? Do they feel that, you know, that that one editor is perhaps trying to dig more deeply into the book and has good ideas? Like, how is that received? I'm always curious about that. Yeah, it really it really depends on, you know, again, whether it's fiction or nonfiction and, and many other mm-hmm. things. I'm calling an example to mind, but I'm trying not to get too specific about it for obvious reasons. But for what for this one example, um, it's it's usually an editor who either drills down further into something we kind of already suspected and really, mm. you know, pulls out the kind of muscles of, of, of what it was that we were trying to accomplish. Because I always say to clients and to anyone, you know, I, I am not an editor, right? I'm an agent. And when I get things ready to go on submission, I edit, but I edit with an eye of an agent, you know, and my job is to take this to a certain level, but knowing that, you know, it's not my job to take it the whole way. So, so there's always things where we, again, we get it as perfect as can be, but you know, then we pass it along. And so if an editor sees something again, that we were trying to touch on, but just scratching the surface or mm-hmm. they, they, they ask questions about things that we hadn't even considered. And those things mm-hmm. are, again, what we were trying to get at. I think that is very, very interesting because you know that they've engaged with it on a level that will, will improve the book. And if there's somebody who wants to make changes where it's, it's changing the position of it entirely, that can mm-hmm. be difficult because it's taking it a bit further away from the vision. So I think it's just, again, the author and, and where they want to go with their career and, and how they imagine something to be. And with nonfiction, it's hard because you're trying to predict where the market's going to be in two years, which is what yeah. makes nonfiction very challenging. And the example I'm calling to mind um, is a nonfiction one. So we're, we're trying to think, okay, what is this post-COVID reader like? And who are they? And, yes. and what do they want? Yeah. So those questions can be really can be really challenging. But, um, but yeah, I think it's an editor who 
engages with the material in a way that we hadn't thought about it before. And I totally understand what you're saying, Jen, about the volume of submissions and and how many editors get, because it's just amazing to me how quickly sometimes editors can turn things around and come to us with these these interesting questions and ideas and really been able to grapple with things. So I know there's so much on editors' plates these days um, in terms of everything they have going on and not only, you know, the industry itself having to kind of reposition itself during COVID, but editors are the point person for the author and the agent, right? So so they're the one fielding all of our questions about like, what's going on over there? (laughs) And Jen, how do you feel like, you know, the industry has changed in the past year and a half in terms of your networking and connecting with your authors and agents, agent friends and colleagues? How has it entirely moved to Zoom? Like, how how do you think that's changed? There are two positives that I want to mention on that. It's that there's usually very few people who get to travel for the various book fairs, international book fairs like London and Frankfurt from a publishing company. It's usually the rights director or the very senior person because it's so expensive to send people. And those relationships really can be built in person or in direct dialogue. So there's often people who don't get a chance to make those international connections in the same way. But through the pandemic, anyone can come to these calls, right? So we have all kinds of people who traditionally would not get to travel meeting with agents on face-to-face Zoom meetings all over the world. So this has been a great thing because you can bring the most junior people into these meetings that, you know, and they can be still small meetings so that there's a dialogue going on, but you get to actually have that access that you didn't get to before uh, in some ways, which I think has been great. The other thing, which I'll just mention because it's been a really exciting thing to help the Collins in particular is that we started something called the Author Referral Program. So we began talking to our authors to say, you know, you already tell us about writers that, are up and coming that you're like, you mentioned it to us in a casual way, but let's make this something that actually is more formalized. It's like, tell us about the writers that you think are exciting. And it, this was also an effort to bring a diversity of voices. So we went to our own writers uh, to say, you know, we're already involved with the community. They might be in the writing, teaching as well as writing for themselves. They might be running festivals like JL. Like there's, mm. there's, there was this effort and we've just seen this incredible connection out into sort of a new writing community. Um, that we really wanted to achieve. And we also run the UBC Creative Writing Program Collins Prize. So the winner of that two years ago was Michelle Good's Five Little Indians, which you just saw mm-hmm. won the Governor General's Award and the Amazon First Novel Award. So that, again, is like trying to reach out and to communities where new writers are. And through the author referral program, it's different from creative writing programs because people are, at, are, are taking a course, whereas author referral it might just be people within writing groups or in communities or the writers that might be published by small presses, but they're they're interested in exploring like a relationship with HarperCollins. So that's been a really exciting development in the last year uh, at Harper. And then, but there was, there's been a lot of outreach, even though we're all alone. <laughs> I think it's only worked because we are all alone. So this effort to communicate with other people has has changed. And we do do a ton of face-to-face now on Zoom. And sometimes you have to ask yourself, is that is that always necessary? Because I think people are pretty exhausted by the Zoom world, Zoom dope, um, <laughs> as we talked about before. But that's has that changed? Like, I'm thinking of the different points. So it's the connection with people. It's our outreach and how we've tried to mitigate for that and increase our outreach through this time. But also, like, just to really ensure that those connections are there. I know that our marketing people, for example, continue to do this really great Indigo outreach, for example. So even though there was store closure, our team was still talking to people and the booksellers at Indigo and keeping them in books, basically, sending them copies of things that were upcoming to read so that there was still that continued engagement even with the store closures, which I think, and with the Indies as well. And that really, I think, helped to show how we were trying to support 
our retail partners and have mm-hmm. keep that conversation going. Yeah. So, yeah. At the beginning, I didn't really kind of miss the lunches and that sort of thing. You're yeah. like, yeah, I'll catch up with them when this is over. One yeah. of the things that I felt like I missed out and I kind of didn't realize this until, I don't know, nine to 12 months into the pandemic was, you know, that this is such a relationship business, right? We know that, right? And then, but then when it's taken away and we've replaced it with this kind of virtual patchwork, it works well enough for a while. But one of the things I realized, you know, as an agent, you know, when I'm doing trips into offices and lunches and and that sort of thing is I am not physically around, you know, the books as much in a way where agents need to know everything that's going on basically. Right. Mm -hmm. And so when I'm not in your office, looking at the books on your shelf, touching the covers, asking Mm -hmm. about this, I've really started reaching out to editors now, just asking them to send me a box of books, you know, like we're not going to be able to go to lunch tonight and I need to know what's going on. You know, I can't afford to get a year behind. Right. So Mm -hmm. I've just been reaching out to to editors now and just like, you know, tell me what's going on on your list, you know, send me this pack of arcs, you know, figure out a way for us to keep in touch physically because Zoom is great and it lasts for a while, but yeah, we're missing some of those, those personal touches. I found that cycle to be challenging, even like for the festival and also because I do the book column on CBCQ, Mm. like when COVID happened, the cycle in which I would find books was broken and there wasn't always even a replacement. So for a while, people weren't printing ARCs. And then a lot of people would say, you know, go on NetGalley and they're available there. I don't have access to NetGalley. And so there was these strange obstacles to even discovering books that I would normally like I wasn't going through the bookstore and seeing what was or wasn't on the shelf I had to kind of like know what was out there but that speaks straight to the book buyer then Mm -hmm. because there there isn't that same ability to during the pandemic through the store closures that wasn't that same thing where someone who was looking for a great book to read they might have heard about something they wanted but then they fall over some great yeah. display or they like that was the discoverability aspect that really vanished. And that's why you saw the books by authors whose name was recognized lift and mm-hmm. others sink, right? Because yeah. there just wasn't a way without a major campaign to draw people's notice to it. And that's yeah. how you see how much you rely on that conversation that going into bookstores that, you know, that that atmosphere of books that we all missed a lot. All right. Well, I feel like I've kept you guys long enough, but I want to ask one last question, which is what are you guys reading right now? I mean, I have a stack next to me. I'm a little overwhelmed, to be honest, in yeah. this, uh, you know, Gemma's just talking about books by writers you know and books by writers you don't know. I've built a better system now where I'm finding books earlier by people I know and don't know. And now I'm just like stressed because my fall list is so tall, like there's so many books. Uh, But I'll say right now I'm reading What Strange Paradise by Omar Elakad. And I'm really, really excited about that one. I'm also reading and I'm really impressed by this one. It's called Satellite Love by Genki Ferguson. If you follow the fold, uh, we've We've profiled it on our Title Tuesday and you can see a little excerpt, but I'm just, I'm really impressed by that one. So those are the two that are, that are on the hopper right now. I'm finally reading Hamnet, uh, called Hamnet and Judith in Canada, and it's spectacular. Mm. And I'm also reading Jordan Abel's um, memoir, Miska, which I'm just starting to. Wonderful. Yeah. And I'm reading Cloud Cuckoo Land, the author of All the Light We Cannot See. Um, Mm. It's been a few years since his last book came out, um, Anthony Doerr. Um, So I'm excited. I I got a very coveted arc. It's not out until the end of September. So I'm very lucky. I know that is really exciting. You have to share it around. I requested so many arcs because I wanted to use the summer to get ahead because I find the fall to be just so overwhelming. Like I just, they just pile so hard. So I'm like, if I can just get ahead, we'll see. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see.
right. Well, thank you guys for spending this time talking about Gutter Child, talking about how we work together. This has been such a fun conversation. So thank you. Thank you. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who is in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who is in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. 
Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.